Our sermon text this morning is Genesis chapter 12, verses 4 to 9. Genesis chapter 12, verses 4 to 9. We'll read from Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through to Genesis chapter 12, verse 9. Before we read that, we'll pray and seek the Lord's blessing on his word. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, the Holy Scriptures. And Father, as we seek now to study and to understand that which you have to say to us, I pray, Father, that I would not speak according to the foolishness of men, but I would speak according to the wisdom that comes down from above, the wisdom of God. Father in heaven, may we be given ears that hear, eyes that see, and hearts that understand and obey. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, studying today Genesis chapter 12, verses 4 to 9, and reading from Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Hear the word of God. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonours you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son and, son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Amen. And may God bless his word to us. So um, just very quickly summing up and getting us to the point where we're at. Abram had set out from Ur of the Chaldeans and gotten as far as a place. Sorry, had gotten as far as um, Haran. That's it. And had gotten as far as a place called Haran. There, family died around him. His father died. His brother had already died. Lot had become an orphan, so to speak. Mind you, Lot was being cared for by the family. At the beginning of Genesis chapter 12 at verse 1, we find God speaking to Abram, directly to Abram. It's a call. We called it the effectual call. Go from your country, from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And then in verses 2 and 3, God spoke of his intentions. I will Make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. And the one who dishonours you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abram was going from one place to another. And Abram was going from one life to another. He was going from the life of someone who was basically an idolater. Remember, we're told in scripture in the book of Joshua that his fathers, and most likely himself, came from Ur of the Chaldees, where they worshipped other gods. It was a centre of um, 
astrology. They most likely worshipped gods who were stars, the moon and the sun. Abram has been set upon the pathway of faith. God has called Abram. God has changed Abram. God has made Abram to be the father of the faithful. That'll get us up to verse four, basically. So Abram went as the Lord told him. Abram went as the Lord told him. Now, if I ask you what is faith or what does faith look like, you might want to turn me into the book of Hebrews chapter 11 and tell me that it's the certainty of things hoped for. Or perhaps, you know, a catechism answer and you'll give me an answer direct from a catechism and they're good answers. And I'm not um, I'm not uh, in any way disagreeing with those answers. I'm simply giving you a complementary definition to those answers. When I say what is faith, faith is living in simple obedience to the word of God. It's simply being obedient. It's living as though that which God says ought to be obeyed. It's being willing to do things that make no sense in the eyes of other others because you know that God has commanded it. If you think of the life that we live as Christians, what are we in the sight of the world? The world will tell you we're fools. The world will tell you we ought to be enjoying our lives, doing whatsoever we please. It's Sunday. As I drove in this morning, I drove past one of the golf clubs. Car park, chock-a-block full. Men out all over the golf course and driving around in their little carts. And some of them in their little carts, they had the cartons of beer right next to them. And they've already got the cartons of beer open. It's Sunday. Why aren't you out enjoying your Sunday? Why aren't you just doing whatever you feel like doing? In the eyes of the world, we're fools. Yet here we are. We've come to worship the living God. We've come to sit under the scriptures. We've come to be reminded of our sins. We've come to seek forgiveness for those sins. We've come to offer our praises to God, the only one who is worthy to be praised. The world says there is no creator. It's all just an accident. Bang. Whoops. Life. That's about as much science as there is in it. Bang. Whoops. Life. And we say, no, there is a God and God created all things and God created mankind in his image. And the world says, you fools. You fools. Why do you want superstition? Why do you want to be enslaved? And that's what they think. They think we're enslaved. But what do we understand? We understand that man was created to serve. Man was not created to be autonomous to be self-directing, to make up his own law. Man was created to serve. And one way or another, every person upon the face of this earth that has ever walked this earth, that has ever lived in one way or another serves. They all serve someone. They all serve something. We have chosen to serve the God who is creator of all. By the grace of God, we have been made willing to serve. They serve their lusts. They serve their sins. They serve their other gods, even though they might claim to have no other god. Many of them have made themselves in their own desires their god. They would claim to be atheists, but they're idolaters, each and every one of them. Because they serve something and they are enslaved to something or somebody. 
And so we live a life in obedience to the word of God and to the world around us. It looks like silliness. God said to Abram, go from your country. And so Abram went as the Lord told him. Faith is simply obeying that which you know. Do you want to know how it is that Christians go wrong so often, fly off the rails so often, make stupid decisions so often? It's really simple. It's really simple. We forget what we know. We actually know exactly what the Lord has commanded of us. We actually know exactly the way he wants us to live. And basically it's like this, every simple, every single decision that we take in our lives, if we make sure that every decision that we take in our lives is in agreement with that which we have been commanded to do, well, we'll hardly go wrong. I'm not saying we'll never make a mistake, but we'll hardly go wrong. If our desire is to live righteously, to live a life of holiness, to live a life of Christ-likeness, to live a life which is in submission to the law of God, And the commandments of God? Now, we don't do that for justification. We're saved through the forgiveness of sins, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we do that because we know that the law teaches us what it is that God desires of humanity. It teaches us the way God wants us to live. You know, if we lived according to that which has been revealed and according to that which we know, well, we simply would stay nearly all the time, on the path. And our stumbles would be stumbles on the path. And then we would seek the forgiveness of the Lord and get back up. But Christians forget what is known. You know, most people don't really have a problem with what is unknown when it comes to Christianity. They have a problem with what is known. You know, people like to come and ask you difficult questions about election and free will and all other kinds of things. The simple truth of the matter is their problem is they want to be able to commit adultery and they want to be able to commit dishonesty and rip people off in business and they want to have whatever God they want to have and they want to hate their neighbour rather than love their neighbour, which is a form of murder. And they want to be able to shoot off at the mouth and say whatever they please and tell dirty jokes and blaspheme the name of God. They actually just want to do all of those things... But they claim that there's some kind of mystery that they don't understand. Now, there are mysteries that I don't understand. And anyone anyone here, we're worshippers of the living God. He's infinite, eternal, almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing. It's not possible that a mere man or a mere woman can know everything there is to know about God. If someone claims to know everything there is to know about God, they're actually claiming to be God. So, of course, there are things we don't know. But our problem is not the things we don't know. It's not the secret things that belong to the Lord our God. I'm thinking here of Deuteronomy 29, 29. That's not the problem. Our problem is the things that have been revealed that belong to us and to our children, that we may do all the words of this law. That's our problem, and it's always our problem. Obeying the things that have been revealed. It's no mystery how God expects us to live. It's no secret how to do things that please God. But we like to forget. The life of faith 
is a life lived in obedience to the word of God. It's a life lived according to that which God has revealed. Even if at times it would appear to the world around us and sometimes even to other Christians that the decisions we're taking are foolish. Sometimes. I'm not saying that you should always be willing to ignore the people around you. But sometimes you might just have a conviction that comes from the Lord. It's possible. Abram went as the Lord had told him. You see, that's what faithful people do. That's what called people do. That's what transformed people do. Abram went as the Lord told him. That Christian went as the Lord told him and shared the gospel, testified to the goodness and the grace of God. That Christian went and worked in honesty, doing an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. That Christian obeyed the law. That Christian was a light to the people around him as the Lord had told him. That's what faith looks like. You know, people sort of imagine that faith is sort of this mental screwing yourself up. It's like winding up a spring, get it as tight as you possibly can. And then when the spring releases in this great big leap of faith, you're going to turn a mountain upside down. You're going to change the whole world in one instant. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. You're going to get everything you want. And that's faith. Well, I'm not saying that miracles are impossible. And I'm not saying that mountains will not be cast into the sea. But most often, like, you know, 9,999 times out of 10,000, what faith looks like is average Joe and average Jill Christian just simply doing what God has said to do. Being faithful, being honest, worshipping God and God alone, obeying the Lord Jesus, forgiving one another, confessing our sins. That's what faith looks like. And slowly but surely, mountains do get cast into the sea. That's what faith looks like. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. And at the last part of verse 4, we see that Lot had went, sorry, the middle part of verse 4, we see that Lot went with him. Lot went with him. You know, I've thought about how to approach this and I've thought of many throwaway lines. Sometimes you take your problems with you. But that's not really fair, is it? Because the scripture in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7 tells us that Lot was righteous and he was a preacher of righteousness. And if you know the life of Lot very well, if you've read your scriptures and the book of Genesis very well, you realise that Lot stumbled quite a lot. Lot uh, fell away quite a bit. Yet even so, the scripture tells us that he's righteous and a preacher of righteousness. So maybe, um, you know, what can we say? Apparently Lot also received the call. Now Lot was not the father of many nations and Lot was not the father of the faithful and it was not with Lot whom God made his covenant. Even so, it would appear that Lot has been called righteous Lot, the preacher of righteousness. Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran and Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's sons and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah 
At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Okay, it's reasonably self-explanatory. Let's just notice a few things. We've already been told that Sarai is barren. Earlier in the um, in the story, we're looking at Genesis chapter 11, verse 30. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Yet God promises that Abram will have a household. God promises that Abram's children will inherit the land upon which he walks. It's interesting to notice the ESV translates it sort of nicely at verse 5, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, these would be servants, slaves, bond servants, bond slaves it might say. Um, the word literally there is and the souls, and the souls that they had acquired in Haran sort of um, seems to indicate that Abram was gathering a people, gathering a people of the Lord. He was sharing the word with them as well, speaking to them about um, the one true living God who had called him into the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah, and notice, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The hostile ones. We know the feeling, don't we? Aren't the Canaanites in the land even today? You know, what were those people at the golf course? Well, I'm telling you, they weren't the people of the living God. If they were, they would have been finding a place to worship the living God. They're the idolaters of the land. The Canaanites. The Canaanites were in the land. So God has called Abram. God has promised to Abram that he would be blessed. Blessed, blessed and blessed. God has promised to Abram that his enemies would be cursed. The ones who dishonour him will be cursed. And all the families of the world shall be blessed through Abram. And Abram's in the midst of his enemies. He's in the midst of those who do not want him to come into his inheritance. They do not want him to receive the blessings that God has promised. He's in the midst of those who would indeed rebel against the word of God. He's in the midst of his enemies. Well, isn't that where anyone who speaks on behalf of the living God ought to be? I'm thinking of Corinth. Now, you've read the books of First and Second Corinthians at some point in time, I'm sure. And uh, there you would have noticed that there were lots of problems. It turns out that Corinth was a gateway to hell, that the city was filled with idolatrous temples, that those idolatrous temples basically worshipped the sex act, that there were priestesses who walked out of those temples into the night and once they were out in the night, they played the part of prostitutes and not only priestesses, but young men also. All forms of idolatry, all forms of wickedness, all forms of dishonesty, Corinth, it would appear, was a gateway to hell. Well, where would God want to put a church? What did Jesus say about the church? I will build my church and against it the gates of hell shall not prevail. The church is going to be, therefore, in the vicinity of the gates of hell. So God plants a church in Corinth. And he sends who the man who I would say at that time was his best operator to build it and to strengthen it, the Apostle Paul. 
And it's not as though the church in Corinth was um, untroubled and untouched by its warfare with the world. Yet even so, that's where God planted his people. Well, God has planted Abram in the midst of the Canaanites. And you would think, don't you? I mean, I've had people turn up at church services in the mountains, especially when we used to be in the church down at Jindabyne. And he'd say, um, this guy, I'm thinking of a guy in particular, he'd turn up, he had a backpack, he'd come to a church service and we'd all say hello and how you're going and what you're doing, etc., etc. And he'd say, I'm here to seek God. Well, you've come to the church. That's a good idea. Have you got a Bible? Oh, no. Um, what I'm going to do, I'm going to go into the national parks and I'm going to camp on top of a mountain for a week. Now, look, I'm not sort of denying that meditation out there in the natural world is a bad thing. It's it's, it's a good thing. And in a way, um, a true Christian might find in that time of lonely meditation that you actually have your eyes opened and you learn a lot of things. I'm not saying that's impossible. But... um, This idea that the only way you could hear from God or speak to God was to be off on your own somewhere with nobody around about you and nobody speaking to you. I understand what someone's getting at there and it might be good for a season, but frankly, it's when I'm in the midst of my enemies that I want to know God is close at hand. And it's when you're in the midst of your enemies that you need the encouragement of a word from God. And Abram was in Canaan, and the Canaanites were in the land. Verse 7, then the Lord appeared to Abram. Right there in the midst of his enemies, right there in the midst of those who do not want him to receive the blessings that God had promised. You know, these are the people that God has promised Abram's offspring will rule over, will displace, will put to death. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. To your offspring. Now, there's something to think about. What do we do for our offspring? What are we doing for our offspring? What are we doing for our children? In in what time frame are we thinking? Are we thinking about our offspring? Christians have a habit of tending to think that they live at the end of the world. It's, it's kind of, in a way, it's a bad habit. We ought to think of this being two possibilities. Either the Lord will return in my lifetime or I will go home to be with the Lord. But you can meet an awful lot of churchgoers who tell you that the Lord is going to return very soon. And they're not making plans for their offspring. They're not making plans for their children and their children's children. They're not thinking about how to raise up a family that honours the Lord. They're so utterly convinced that the end of the world is nigh, that it's here. We see it today, don't we? I mean, I, I I don't want to tell you how many messages I get through various different means from different people telling me that, The COVID vaccinations are the mark of the beast. 
I'm not going to argue about whether or not you ought to get your vaccination, but I'm telling you now that if you're going to take that passage in the book of Revelations, literally, the COVID vaccines are not the mark of the beast because they're not a mark on your forehead or the back of your right hand because that's what it literally says. Okay? They tell me that the COVID vaccines are the mark of the beast and that the rapture is just around the corner and I don't want to argue about the rapture either. Although if you sat through when we um, studied the book of First Thessalonians, you know that I argued that the passage that is considered to be the rapture passage is actually concerning the very last day of this present evil age when the Lord Jesus himself returns. Nevertheless, they tell me the vaccine's the mark of the beast and we're at the end of the world and, you know, there are some, oh, the second seal is being opened now and all this stuff. And it's like, oh, oh, please stop it. Please stop it. You want to know the attitude that we should have as Christians? That we obey the Lord to the fullest extent every possible, every day of our lives, in every way, that we live as though everything in our lives is under the dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ and that that includes the future of our families and the raising of our children and our grandchildren. And if... If someone could tell me at 3.33 a.m. tomorrow morning, the Lord Jesus returns, do you want to know what I'm going to do? I'm going to finish out this day as I planned to finish out this day. The Lord willing, we'll have our next church service this evening and I'll preach the gospel from the gospel of Luke. And we'll pray as we always prayed. And I'll speak to my family as I've always spoken to my family. And I'll go and do the work that the Lord has called me to do. And if he returned at 3.33 a.m. tomorrow morning and he asks me, and was I doing the things that he gave me to do when he returns, I can say yes. We're instructed to raise our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Every man here who has a family has been instructed to be the head of his family, the priest of his own household, to teach his children and his offspring after him the word of the Lord and to obey the word of the Lord, to teach them the Holy Scriptures, to teach them what obedient looks like, to model the Lord Jesus Christ for all who see us. There's a heavy responsibility and that's a much heavier responsibility than being ready for the rapture tomorrow, whether or not it is going to happen tomorrow. Obey every day. What Jesus wants to find is not a bunch of people running around in circles saying the world is coming to an end and I'm just waiting for the rapture. What Jesus wants to find is a whole bunch of people doing exactly what he gave them to do according to the commandments revealed in Scripture. So we're here in the midst of our enemies as Abram was in the midst of his enemies and the Lord came to him. You want to draw close to Jesus? Well, I'm telling you, you need not climb to the top of a mountain. You want to draw close to Jesus? I'm telling you that there's not any particular place that might be closer to the presence of the Lord than any other place. And sometimes it's when things are at their absolute worst. It's at sometimes when people are actually, as it were, tearing your skin, attacking you slandering you, hurting you. Sometimes it's then that the Lord, in a manner of speaking, appears to you and you feel the calming presence of God the Holy Spirit telling you 
that these things you suffer, you suffer for the name of Jesus, that Jesus himself understands that this is what happened to the Lord. The world hated him. It's not surprising that the world hates us. So, my friends, let's not be scared of living in the midst of our enemies. Who knows but that the Lord will appear to us. To your offspring, I will give this land. To your offspring. There's promises there. Now, you've got to obey. Abram was called to go from one place to another. That was the beginning of his obedience. He went from Haran to Canaan. And there are promises there concerning our children. But my friends, it's to us, it's up to us to obey. We raise our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. We raise our children worshipping the living God. We raise our children under the scriptures. That's what we've been charged with by God himself. To your offspring I will give this land. Interesting, isn't it? Abram did not actually therefore live for what he himself would get, but he lived on behalf of others. He lived for what could be done for his children. He lived for the promises of God that were to be delivered, whether he himself saw them or not. Faith looks to the future. Faith looks to what looks to the providence and the blessings of God that have been promised in our future. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. He worshipped. He made an offering on the altar. Now, he's already a man of faith. He's already been called. He's not buying, he's not buying his salvation here. People read about offerings being made on the altar and they sort of read it at a surface level and say, look, he made an offering and he was saved. God accepted his worship. He's not making his offering to buy his worship. He's making his offering to acknowledge that he is a child of God, that God has called him, that God has made him his own. Abram worshipped the Lord in the presence of his enemies. The people round about, they had gods, statues, pictures, idols. They had temples. They had priests. They had priestesses. They had a culture. They had a way of living. This strange man in their eyes, strange man, comes to them and he sets up an altar an altar they understand. But in their culture, the altar is set before the statue. You know, you've got a statue of your God and you make an offering before the statue. And Abram sets up an altar out in the open, somewhere in the region of an oak tree. And there's nothing before it, nothing to be seen. And there on the altar... He makes an offering to his God who is not seen, who is not represented by an image. In the midst of the Canaanites, my friends, we're called upon to be worshippers of the living God, to offer up our lives as a living sacrifice to the Lord Jesus Christ, to live lives that are different to the people around about us, From there, verse 8, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. 
And once again, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Notice concerning this second construction of an altar. This time the Lord God had not appeared to him, nor given him any special word. We're already seeing something of a distinction. In the life of a believer, there are indeed special and blessed times. And for many of us, that's the time around about when we were converted. I don't know about you, but for me, it was, I just remember being um, incredibly happy within myself. I'd been, I'd been drawn out of darkness into the light. I was incredibly happy. When I, I, don't, I shouldn't have said with myself, I meant within myself. I, I was called from darkness to light. I had a reason to live. I had a reason to be happy. And for a while there, it seemed that the Christian faith was very easy. It really did. You know, victory over sin, it seemed to be just granted instantly. I loved the scriptures. I couldn't read enough. All was wonderful. But then eventually the Lord um, says, okay, you've gotten the kickstart. You know, I've, I've, I've given you help to get you over those first early stages. And now... You're going to have to just simply learn the disciplined habits of regular worship. And this is what the Lord has done with Abram. Abram builds an altar and worships because the Lord has appeared to him, spoken to him and made a promise. The second time he builds an altar, it's because he just wants to worship. The Lord kick-started him. The Lord appeared to him. The Lord gave him promises to believe Abram held on to the promise. He held on to it. His heart was set upon it. His worship of God was true and ongoing. He doesn't need a miraculous appearance from God every other day of the week. It's one of my great issues with Pentecostal worship. I don't deny that there are times when God Draws close. Let's use that phrase. I don't deny that there are times when God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, enables us to be spiritually more alive and more aware than at other times. I don't deny that. I think I've used the illustration before, but I'll use it again. Once when I was um, far younger in my Christian life and in my Christian walk, I remember I had this prayer time, kneeling by the side of my bed. It was before we were married, before Lisa and I were married. I had this prayer time. It went for hours. It just went on and on, and I didn't notice the time passing. I remember when I, when I finally sort of said my amens and looked at the clock, and I realised I'd been there almost two hours. I was just blown away. It was a wonderful time. It was blessed. I was a young Christian, so what did I do the next night? I tried to do everything just the same all over again. Cup of tea at the same time, shower at the same time, etc., etc. I tried to do everything all over again, got to the side of my bed at exactly the same time, knelt down expecting the great and mighty blessing all over again. What did I get? Felt like nothing. Felt like no help whatsoever. 
I barely prayed for two minutes. You see, I don't get to tell God what to do. God blessed me at that moment, the first time around, with a, with a certain visitation, if you want to use that word. God, by the power of his spirit, drew near, made me aware of his presence. What a blessing. But the next day, do I get to tell God what to do? Do I get to tell God that he must come the next day and do exactly the same thing all over again? Of course not. God is God. I'm just a person. You see, there's discipline in a life of worship. You don't run by feelings. It's wonderful when your feelings are actually in agreement with reality, but your feelings themselves do not dictate reality. The problem with Pentecostal worship is it basically demands that every Sunday is miraculous. That every Sunday there's to be a revival, that every Sunday there's to be a great outpouring, that every Sunday there's to be a moving of the Spirit. Yet God is sovereign. What right have we to demand that God does this at a particular time and at a particular place and in a particular way? It's madness. So Abram builds an altar and once again he calls upon the name of the Lord. There in the midst of his enemies, what does he say? I belong to the living God. I belong to Yahweh. The promises of God have been given to me. I worship God who created the heavens and the earth. I do not worship your idols. I do not live the way that you live. I worship the living God. Joshua put it this way, as for me and my household, we will follow the Lord. Abram there publicly proclaims in the promised land, as for me and my household, we will follow the Lord. There's a time sometimes for defiance. There's a time sometimes for Christians to be defiant, to practice what I've called before at other times holy stubbornness. Now, stubbornness is not always good. It can be bad. And I can practice bad stubbornness, I admit it. But there is this thing that I would call holy stubbornness, this determination to follow the word of God, this determination to be the people of the living God, this determination to be Christ-like and not to compromise, this determination to worship God and God alone and not to give glory to men. Sometimes you've got to be stubborn because the world is always seeking to turn you aside. The world is always seeking to make you compromise. Just turn to Psalm 138. Just looking at verse 1. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. Before the gods I sing your praise. Now, there are a few different ways that could be understood. In another place in the Psalms, those who have been given authority by God to act as judges in the world are also called gods. But I think what David is getting at here is that he lived in a nation surrounded by pagan nations, that all of his enemies were idolaters, that they worshipped false gods. And I think what David is getting at here 
is that in the face of those false gods, I praise the one true living God. Before the gods, I sing your praise. Before those who deny, I affirm. Before those who tell me to be silent, I speak. Before the gods, I sing your praise. And I would suggest to you here in Genesis chapter 12, in the, in the portion that we're looking at this morning, as Abram builds these altars in the land of Canaan, before their gods, he sings the praise of the living God. Before the idols, before the enemies, before those who should be cast out of this land, he proclaims the word of God. He proclaims the truth concerning the living God. Abram worships God in the face of those who do not. Christians, how are you called to live? How are we called to live? What are we called upon to do in this world? What are we doing here on a Sunday? What are we meant to do every other day of our lives? Before the gods that surround us, the false gods of the world around about us, we're called to sing the praise of the living God. We're called to be worshippers of the living God. We're called to offer up our own bodies as a living sacrifice. My friends, we're also called the offspring of Abram by faith. We're told that we share in the faith of Abram and are counted as his children. You know, that promise that in him all the nations of the world shall be blessed. How do you think that's being fulfilled? The preaching of the gospel preaching of the gospel. In Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, remember we're told that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ preached throughout the world, all tribes, all tongues, all nations, hearing the gospel of truth and all who share in the faith of Abraham, called the offspring of Abraham. In him all the nations of the world shall be blessed. My friends, we live in the midst of enemies. We live in a world that is yet to be utterly and totally conquered. It has been done in a manner of speaking. You know, we're in that sort of in-between land where it is accomplished and yet, and yet even though it is accomplished, it's yet to be done. It's accomplished. The Lord Jesus Christ has won his victory upon the cross of Calvary. He's shed his blood. He's redeemed his people. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. It is accomplished. Even though it's accomplished, there is a manner of speaking in which it is yet to be done. Well, amongst the things that we must do in this world is that we must worship God in the presence of the false gods. We must worship the true and the living God and proclaim his praises in the presence of the false gods. And we must live as though that which is promised has been given. Once again, Faith. We must live as though that which is promised has been given. God said to Abram, to your offspring, I will give this land. And Abram sets up an altar and worships as though the promise is already fulfilled. And then he goes a little bit further into the promised land and he builds another altar and worships as though the promise has already been fulfilled. As I close, I'll just leave you with some questions.
Do we live as though Jesus is the victor? Do we live as though Jesus has won the victory? Do we live as though he has conquered the dominions and the powers? Do we live as though he is truly King of kings and Lord of lords? What does it look like? What does that life look like? We're called upon to worship the living God. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you that indeed we, we know that your word is true, that that which you have promised can be lived upon as though it has already been done. Help us, Father, to live a life of faith here in the midst of the world. Help us, Father, to proclaim the truth to a people who are lost. Help us, Father, to worship in spirit and in truth. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.